the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're looking at Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith's dark comedy anthology, Inside Number Nine. Now, many of Inside Number Nine's episodes end on a twist, which makes it ideal fodder for us on Spoiler. But if you've not seen the series, we will ruin it for you. So, go away, watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. Over recent years, the received wisdom in the TV industry is that comedy thrives on repetition and familiarity, from the self-contained, never-changing world of the sitcom to the repeated catchphrases of sketch shows. I am a lady! Oh, suit you, sir. I'm a bubble. Computer says no. Oh, I can't, sir. Hello, Dave. But in 2014, inspired by a love of 1970s TV plays, such as the BBC's Play for Today, and anthologies like ITV's Armchair Thriller, Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith booked the trend with a series of self-contained stories linked only by the number nine. Inside Number Nine isn't the first comedy anthology series. There's been a few over the years, from Michael Palin's Ripping Yarns to Dawn French's Murder Most Horrid. But ex-League of Gentlemen alumni Pemberton and Shearsmith brought their unique brand of dark, macabre humour to the genre and introduced the added factor of confinement, with episodes taking place in just one location, including a train sleeper carriage, a theatre dressing room, and a medieval barn. You know, there's something about not leaving a room, and there's something that felt really exciting about it in this day of fast cuts and things, about going back to those, those play-for-todays and, and those things of one room or one set. The creators went to great lengths to give each episode its own unique look and mood, even to the extent of having movie-style poster art created for each story. And in some episodes, as if not satisfied with the challenge of writing and starring in a self-contained 30-minute story set in one location, Pemberton and Shearsmith set themselves further challenges, including an entirely silent episode and an episode shot in real time on CCTV cameras. This was Victoria's booth. She was one of our longest standing volunteers, but she's had to take a bit of gardening leave. She had three dead dads in two days. It tipped her over the edge. The series has also become known for its surprise endings, although the writers have tried to discourage viewers from expecting a twist every time. Critical reaction to the series has been largely positive. Mark Jones in The Guardian said it was never less than captivating, while David Chater in The Times praised the rich and perverse imaginations of Pemberton and Shearsmith. Sorry for spoiling your programme. Oh, no, it's fine. I'm swearing too much anyway. Yeah, that was before you murdered a dwarf. However, some critics have questioned whether the series really qualifies as a comedy, with one writer in The Times calling it more traumatic than humorous. And Virginia Blackburn in the Daily Express was even more robust, criticising one episode as not funny, not clever, and so utterly, irredeemably, naffly silly that it ends up being incredibly irritating and nothing else. So, is Inside Number 9 actually funny? Does it even matter? And who on earth takes any notice of Daily Express critics? Later in the show, in honour of Inside Number 9's often claustrophobic settings, we'll be taking a look at some other sitcom bottle episodes. But first, here to discuss Series 2, or some of Series 2 at least, of Inside Number 9, is the twisty 
Andy Golding. <laughs> and the attorney, Rachel Burnett. Hello. Hey, good to have the team back. Now, Inside Number Nine is a bit of a tricky thing to review as it's made up of completely separate stories. So to make things a bit more manageable, we're going to concentrate on just two episodes. Later, we're going to be talking about perhaps the most talked about episode of Series 2, The 12 Days of Christine. Uh, but first, what better place to begin than the end with Episode 6, Seance Time? So, Rachel, Rachel, let's oh, go with God. you first. I fancy picking on Rachel first. So, did you, <laughs> let's see, did you watch these when they first came out or have you just watched this for spoiler? What, what's going on? No, I watched them when they first came out, which okay. is weird because I can't stand League of Gentlemen. It scares the bejesus out of me. So, I don't know why I thought these would be okay for me. They are, actually. And, no, I, I thought they were amazing. Really good. I watched Series 1. And um, couldn't wait for series two, and can't wait for series three. Okay, well, let's—I mean, let's talk quite specifically about about seance time. Okay, and just about the the point you brought up there about it being scary. Mm. Now, I watched these first time round with my wife, and this was pretty much like we would watch it as live. You know, we would mm. watch we would watch it go out. I mean, yeah, who does that? <laughs> um, but it was it was you know appointment TV, I think they call it, and we we sat down every week and and, and made sure we watched it. It was just fantastic. Now, anything like this that's a bit scary, uh, a bit like the Walking Dead that's a bit it's going to frighten me <laughs> and, and I mean me um, I, I, I like to have my wife there and we like you know and, and I feel safe and it's okay now when we when I rewatch these I watched it by myself and particularly this episode it scared the bejesus <laughs> out of me um, so I mean and, and actually I was thinking as quite specifically about you as well Rachel oh, well, at that you. point and thinking well I mean, did you watch these on your own or, or your housemate um, with you or what, what, what's going on there because I watched them on my own <laughs> And I was scared. I watched them in the daylight (laughs) on a laptop. There's something about having something on a laptop which makes it less immersive. Because you can slam the lid down. Yes, there is that. You can slam the lid down. So it was a conscious decision to watch it on a laptop in the daylight. So give us an overview. I mean, you obviously obviously, love this this one, right? I do, really. Um, Which is strange because I don't like creepy, scary Mm. things. But I like the cleverness of it. And the humour of it. And I love the performances. I think that's what I love most about Inside Number 9 is the quality of the performances and the acting is just superb. Andy, um, did this scare you? A little bit, yeah. I mean, uh, I got sort of that, those prickles in the back of my hands yeah. and everything. But uh, I, I thought it was a really funny episode as well. I mean, I know we t- touched on some critics have said that it didn't really combine the humour and the horror very well. But I think it really did. I, I was laughing all the way through this. Even when it got a bit creepy, it was still kind of funny. I mean, I absolutely loathe practical jokes. So I really liked this episode because it was kind of a, seeing the tables turned in a way yeah. on, a, on a practical joker. I, think, I mean, I think they're so sort of mean-spirited and I just don't know why people do it. I mean, all it is is to, to make someone either feel disappointed or scared or worried or just hate them. So um, it was really interesting to see. I mean, uh, Reese Shearsmith in this episode was particularly brilliant, I think, because uh, sort of the Jeremy Beadle figure, the figurehead of the <laughs> the episode. But yeah. uh, when he was off camera, he had no sense of humour whatsoever about himself or anything. But also, like, it, it was a really good ensemble. I mean, it's, it's quite a large, large cast for this one. And just so many famous names, obviously, wanting to work with uh, Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton, I think. I think that's been the same all the way through their career since they did League of Gentlemen, which I have to say I wasn't a fan of either. So uh, 
this this kind of took me by surprise how much I liked it. Mm. Um, so I mean, I was a fan of, of of the League of Gentlemen. It was it was an astonishing TV program. I thought, and this there's something about these guys, and I think I think you you're both going to agree with this. This is, is a comfortable place to be, isn't it? You know, sometimes we head out, don't we, just to have an argument. Uh, but this one, you know, we're in, we're in we're, we're, apart from the scares, we're in uh, we're in we're in comfortable with a bit. And I tell you why, because there's a trust. I trust them when they're doing these the horror stories. There is that trust there, and actually. While, while let's just get rid of this whole comedy thing and does it have to there are points in this where obviously it doesn't have to be funny but there are yeah. there are if there's one laugh in this that's enough for me because of the quality of it yeah. and you know try, stop trying to stick all your labels on it and say it's a comedy horror it, for me this is a comedy horror but you know what if I don't laugh through one episode of six I'm intelligent enough and you know what millions of people out there are in well <laughs> actually not millions probably hundreds of <laughs> probably just hundreds of thousands because that's that's the way that the uh, the viewing figures went, but there are intelligent enough people to understand that and grasp that that mm-hmm. you don't have to have your side splitting uh, every episode to be entertained. Absolutely. So that's we can wipe that under the floor. We've yeah. sorted that out. This is the definitive <laughs> argument on that. And if anyone at the Daily Express wants to come back to us, then uh, you know, please do, please do get in touch. Get in touch with our producer, uh, Johnny Hall. <laughs> um, right. Okay. So this episode, it, like you say, the ensemble cast subtly brilliant. Uh, Alison Stebman was just I mean just outstanding yeah. as the actress wasn't she uh, I mean I did an impression of her while we were warming up here and I don't feel confident <laughs> enough to do it now um, but the other people who were in there Carrie Ad Lloyd who played the, uh, the, the the Happer sort of TV producer and the wonderful Alice Lowe oh, yeah. now at first at first I wondered whether Alice Lowe who um, and this is a name you would have to look up I think because you're going to see yeah. her in things and you can say oh she was in that she was in this yeah. she was in I mean I've got I've written a list she's in uh, Sightseers Garth Marenghi's Dark Place Snuffbox um, she Appears in the truly wonderful, and I mean, we are right. This is this is a production meeting live, live, right? Okay, as it goes. But if we don't do horrible histories at some point <laughs> on yeah. spoiler or you know some kids' TV program, Hacker Time, maybe some something like that, uh, then we're not really doing our job. Anyway, that's by the by. But she just appears in the in these things. She's subtly brilliant. And I, my my first reaction when I first typed out what you see in front of me here in the studio was that I thought she was underused. And then I thought, well, no, hang on. This is what she does. Yeah. That's why she does it so brilliantly, yeah. and that's why, why why people go for it. But the, another thing you were saying there about the the, the queue of actors that must be that you know they must have their their agent and say, look, if they call, say yes, <laughs> say yes, just like Doctor Who, say yes. Um, so I mean, we we also picked up on just there about um, the amount of people that watch this. Now, this is a BBC thing, isn't it? Where Okay, so if it doesn't reach the million point, there have been questions, I think, over whether this should be commissioned again because of these these figures. It, it shouldn't come down to figures, should it? It should no. come down to an entertaining, intelligent people like me. <laughs> Just you, Paul. Yeah, yeah. I can only speak for myself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the the, uh, the subjects involved here of reality TV, and I think you've touched on this, Andy, where, I mean, Reece Shearsmith uh, in particular was, was just deliciously um, obtuse, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, and also Alison Stedman. And you you do wonder where they've picked this up on from. Is this, both of them pulled this sort of experience of working in the TV industry, working in the acting industry. I bet, I bet that's exactly what it's really like, don't you? <laughs> yeah, well, it seemed that way. I mean, they both seem sort of like frustrated performers, but with Alison Stedman's character, she seemed like a, uh, a stage actress who this was very much beneath her and she didn't want to be there. She was just filling time between her stage productions. Whereas Reese Shearsmith was playing the host as if he's, he'd kind of sell his soul to anything if it'd make him a bit of money yeah. and, uh, mm. 
and th- this is what had kind of got into trouble because obviously in the past he's he's done a, a prank show that where an unspecified gag with a, a gorilla has made a little boy wet himself on live TV, yeah. and that's the that's the sort of thing that uh, you can imagine it happening, and yet and yet it's become the most popular clip apparently of this this fictional show, which you can also imagine happening. It would be all over YouTube and mm. stuff, and people constantly asking him about it. So yeah, yeah and the TV start getting bitter over a YouTube thing that's not making him any money. Mm. Yeah, and and well, was it bingo adverts? Is it ended yeah. up doing, which is just perfect, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Go back to your bingo adverts. Yeah, I thought it was interesting as well the way they treated the um, the blue dwarf. Um, he wasn't a dwarf. Not really a dwarf. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but they didn't even know his name, and I thought that was really telling. This idea that in these programs there was a real hierarchy going on. And it's like they, they really treated the talent, you know, <laughs> Alison Stedman's character is like, oh, oh, make sure that she's got her her contacts in and make sure she's got some water. And the poor blue dwarf guy was like locked in the little trunk and even when he was dead, nobody seemed that bothered. <laughs> 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 oh, I think my, my favourite line in the episode was Alice Lowe on the phone when he's been punched in the face and she said, well, he is blue, but he might not be underneath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <isn't it>? yeah. <laughs> that was great. Only she can deliver a line like that. Yeah. She's so good. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's what we were talking about just now, about the, the subtlety of her, mm. of her, of her character. Um, so let's, let's veer towards the end now, I suppose. Um, and, I mean, really a horrific ending wasn't it who wants to come in on that <laughs> i'm too scared <laughs> andy andy i mean this is i mean this is, are you frightened so when alison steven walks in with the baby the, the doll yeah now this is the kind of thing that i think if you put one of those dolls in the front of your house in the window in the front window you will never be burgled <laughs> yeah i want to look around uh, when me and my wife were looking for a, a place to live we looked around a, a little cottage and someone left one of them just sat up on a bed and I mean, even if we'd loved the place, I don't think we would have bought that. It was just... <laughs> yeah, it's too much, isn't it? It's too much. But it's just it, even just putting that in, which is an old trope, but it really works, yeah. isn't it? It really mm-hmm. works. Uh, and then, then towards the end, and I, I'd also like to talk about the quality of the acting, I think, as well. And these two as actors, Pemberton and Shearsmith. I yeah. mean, uh, I, 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 I think... In this episode, as well, coming in, um, coming in through the door with um, with dog mess on his trainer, like really sort of uh, messing it up and shaking it up, and then that surprise when he punched him in the face. It's, it was it was really you know really quite something, wasn't it? Um, but that last let's let's go to it. That last the very last scene, the very last scene. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it was it was properly spooky, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I immediately, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people did as well. I immediately thought the Blair Witch Project was someone standing in a corner. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it really it does send <laughs> chills. Still is. Yeah. That's it. Still is. That's was, it. Sometimes no, this is this is good. This is okay. This is fine because sometimes you don't need the words, do you? <laughs> Just that. Oh, that's that, yeah. that. You're exactly right. That's that. <laughs> one one thing I think, which, like you know the the very last second of it where the boy's face came up in front of the camera and mm. I'm, I'm not sure if i like that or not i think it, it might have given a little bit too much i think it it was a little it would have been creepier if that hadn't happened and we just left it with him stood there with the wet trousers and mm. i'm not sure it's know. it's the big sort of it's like the end of carrie or something like that they're going for one of those sort of jump scares yeah. aren't they but it didn't for some reason that didn't make me jump i wasn't expecting it but when it came up i mean i don't know why no way. But, no. i jumped on my skin so did i <laughs> 
I mean, if they hadn't have put that in, I might have slept better last night. <laughs> <laughs> I think they had to because they, they were following all the horror conventions, and yeah. all the music box and the and the doll and all these things, and then it needed that at the end, all the hand coming out of the, you know, it needed that just to yeah, just to give it that yeah. rounded. I think this you're, is winning, a horror you're thing. winning me over on oh, that side. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think one of the cleverest things they did in this episode was um, after uh, Steve Pemberton's character came in and he pulled the wire off the, off the tambourine. <laughs> Right. I, I thought at some point that tambourine's then going to go flying, and that was that was going to be the thing. And they didn't do that. Yeah. And I thought, mm. oh, well done, well mm. done, you, bravo, yeah. you know, fantastic. You didn't go for the obvious. There's a lot of things like that, though, isn't there? It's like they're like little magic tricks almost. There's a lot of misdirection and things. Yeah. It's like in the, the episode before, Am, with the uh, the cake and the knife, mm. and everyone thought they knew what was going to happen, and it didn't happen. Yeah. And that's that makes it that keeps you on the edge of the seat. There's so many little red herrings and things throughout the whole series, mm. which is just, I mean, it's really down to just superb writing, isn't mm. it? Yeah, it'd be great to know the writing process would like to be in that room i'd like to be in that room now later andy will be taking a look at some other comedies where the writers have confined themselves to just one location and we'll be discussing episode two of series two the 12 days of christine starring sheridan smith that's after this short break hope you're enjoying the show so far if you'd like to help us make more and help us keep supplied with coffee and cake, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including The Ghost of Sleeth by James Herbert. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help keep our producer Johnny supplied with tickets for Psychic Sally's next UK tour. Now. Back to the show. Because I thought they cancelled it. They did, but it's back now. On ITV? No. Uh, right, so welcome back to Spoiler, the programme that talks about the ending. So if you've not seen uh, Inside Number 9, and quite specifically now, uh, The 12 Days of Christine, uh, go and watch it. What on earth is wrong with you? <laughs> so we are going to talk now about The 12 Days of Christine, which uh, got a lot, of, a lot of positive reviews. And a lot of that has to do with Sheridan Smith, because she's astonishing, right? She truly is. <laughs> and she's a local girl-ish. <laughs> so we will, like Thomas Turgoose, we shall welcome him and her to our fold. Um, no, very proud of Sheridan. She's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And she brought that every girlness to the character. It needed to be somebody anyone could relate to. Mm-hmm. She goes through the things that most people go through. And she couldn't be this astonishingly slinky, sexy. I mean, she is sexy, but in her own lovely way. Mm-hmm. Um, it had to be somebody anyone could relate to. And we all know Sheridan. We've watched her come from uh, two pints of lager and a packet of crisps. Yeah. Um, which wasted in that. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I was going to make the same point. <laughs> and then obviously her little bits in Gavin and Stacey where she stole every single scene <laughs> she was in. And um, and then with Scylla as well, playing Scylla Black, which got her loads and loads of good reviews as well. Um, so this girl can do whatever she wants to do. And she's just so watchable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she really did 
I just bring just an outstanding class to this, mm. didn't she? Um, and it's, it's it's really her episode. Now, it's, it's funny because in my memory, before we rewatched these, before we uh, we come back, in my memory, I actually didn't even remember Shear Smith and Pemberton being in these at all. No. I, I just all I remember uh, was 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 just how, how well it was. I mean, let's let's give a, a bit of background on the episode. Here. I mean, it's uh, it's filmed over tw- twelve days of a year, isn't it? And it but it goes to it goes through uh, every month, doesn't yeah, it? But it's twelve days of twelve years, isn't it? Oh yeah, twelve days, twelve years, and it goes through every month. I mean, this is it. These are the subtle things that are just dropped in every now and then. And I think it wasn't really until it sort of got to Easter time that I realised that then it was it yeah. was happening over a, mm. a period of a year. Um, and again, that's the just that subtleness in the writing, isn't mm. it? That just you know brings it out. So Andy, how did how did you get on with this one? I just thought it was a masterpiece. This one. I, I mean, uh, I hadn't seen any Inside Number Nine uh, before when I sat down to to watch it for spoiler, and I watched the first one, La Couchette, and I didn't really like it, and it set up certain expectations for me. And then I watched this, and it was such a massive tonal shift. This, I mean, we talked about not putting labels on it, and this is this is a prime example. I mean, it had it had elements of comedy, but to me, this was like a little sort of art house horror film. Well, it's not. It wasn't really horror in the end, but it mm. to me, this was the the scariest episode. I think. I mean, that that bit with the eggs, and mm. the, when before you know what's going on, it really uh, it really creeped me out. I mean, mm. well, let's let's break it down. She, it's it's twelve days. Uh, across 12 years and each one is so we start off in January and then we go February the next year and then March the next year and so yeah. forth and uh, each one was sort of sometimes quite subtly uh, they they defined the, the month of the year by what was going on so it was New Year on the first one some of them were just like bank holidays and the start of school and things like that mm. weren't they so early early on in it there was uh, Valentine's Day the second sort of portion of it and she gets this Valentine's card from her ex-boyfriend who she hasn't heard from since they were very young and then very quickly we established that he's actually dead and we think right that's odd but it's a little odd detail that sort of passed over with just a sort of little reaction to it and then slowly these strange things start to happen uh, as we got to the easter portion of it suddenly the room goes dark and and eggs have been thrown across the room uh, seemingly from nowhere and it just that instantly again my hair stood up and mm. it wasn't until the very end i didn't guess what was going to happen uh, this is a, a twist that i've seen used in in some other films and things before or sort of thereabouts but until I saw the end of it I didn't work out what was going on at all so I was from that moment I was I was very on edge watching this but also it was so such a kind of human drama that that drew me in as well so I wasn't just edge of the seat all the time I mean one thing that I found really touching was the uh, the friendship between Christine and her best friend who was played by Steve Pemberton yeah. Yeah. and I thought he was brilliant in that role and uh, and that that really impressed me that when Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton are writing these if there isn't a role for them in it or if there's only a small role for it they will stand down and give the stage to someone else there's yeah. not there's no egos involved so mm. Reese Shearsmith played the uh, the strange figure who kept turning up in her apartment who reminded her of this ex-boyfriend and he didn't have a lot to do but he was he was still a presence there but very much background which is must be why you forgot he was there even yeah, before, yeah it? Cause, completely well that and because it was all very good acting I mean when I saw Steve Pemberton in this role I didn't think of him in Seance Time or in La Couchette or any mm. of those and it was such a well-played role I mean he was he was a gay character and he was kind of slightly flamboyant but not over the top and it wasn't all steeped in stereotypes and things like the cheapest comedy was he was just a very human character and their relationship was so nicely drawn there was a little bit in the 
the Halloween section mm-hmm. where they have this talk about remember when we we said if we weren't married by a certain age that we'd married each other and and he said you're not really that desperate yet are you? <laughs> that very kind of it was very conversational like it's the sort of thing you'd laugh at in a pub not necessarily expect to be a, a funny line in a, a comedy but it was so real mm. in the midst of these mysterious goings on I think they pulled those threads together so beautifully mm. Mm. I see one of the tricks I was going to say tricks in the writing I think tricks is the wrong word because it undermines it the talent in the writing yeah. of that is all these are just the half hour episodes and you have to get something across very quickly in half an hour. What you've just described is because, I mean, Steve Pemberton's character is in, in this. He's, he's probably not even in it for more than 10 minutes. But like you say, they've got that, you know, that, that relationship yeah. built up there. And it's done in a few sentences of what other people, other writers are trying to do over mm-hmm. a series yeah. uh, or, you know, even, even many series and, and, and still fail to do and still fail to get across. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think that's you're exactly right. That's where it is. So, I mean, towards the end of this, then, I mean, did you did, did you see it coming, Rachel? Did you see what was happening? No, I was trying to cast my mind back because I'd seen this first ages ago when it first came out and then I rewatched it. I had half forgotten what happened, but I did know what the end result was going to be. I think when I first saw it, I thought she was developing early onset dementia mm-hmm. because her dad had it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, she's going really strange. She's forgetting things. Things are going muddled up. It's like her dad. And I, I really thought that until really near the end. And then Would you think that was a red herring put in there specifically oh, yeah, for I that purpose? Yeah, I think loads of red herrings very yeah. purposefully put in. But I totally didn't get that she'd been in an accident until, until think probably the photo album. And she get, and I thought, and then she says, "Oh, I think I know what's happening now." And I thought, "Do you?" Because yeah. yeah, <laughs> I'm still not entirely <laughs> sure. And um, but then, oh gosh, when when you do find out, well, wow. And when yeah. you do, it's almost like rewinding the whole thing again, mm. and things start to fall into place yeah. into your mind. But not just for that. I mean, it happens right at the end, and while you're watching that bit. Lots of things are going on. So this is, again, them having the trust in their audience that they're smart enough to be able to do that uh, without even watching it again. But how many days afterwards were you, think, were you thinking about that? You know, you're still, you're still in your mind, you're still piecing things together and you're at work or you're on the way to work and you think, oh, yeah, the eggs, mm. of course the eggs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were in the car, weren't they? And then they're flying mm. against there. And, um, you know, the reason Reese Shearsmith's character kept sort of popping up or even baby snatching or child snatching was that he was looking after him, he yeah. was, you know, trying to get him out of the car, yeah. you know, and... The, and he looked, it was you know, the effects that he had him on the rain. He had that silly hood up, which mm. made him look really creepy. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he just would have done if it was raining that hard, wouldn't he? You know, yeah. you'd have done that. And it's just, it, it's just perfect. They've got such a visual, when they write, they must have this visual idea. Mm. You know, it, it makes you, again, I want to come back. I just so want to be in that room when they're writing. We need to oh, put yeah. some CCTV in there. I think. Definitely. What did you get from, from Reese Smith's character? Because there's been a bit of debate on the internet. For me, I, I thought the he internet, was just... those loons. <laughs> well, for me, I thought he was, he was just someone who looked like an old boyfriend. And that is what brought mm. an old boyfriend into That's it. That's what so... I was thinking. I was thinking that. But actually, he was just a passive And we walked out in front of the car, didn't he? Yeah. We walked out in front of yeah. the car. Yeah. But yeah, I think because we saw that photo of our old boyfriend who looked similar, didn't he? But I don't think he was the old boyfriend or anything. No, no. I don't think it was anything particularly connected to her. I know she sort of said, oh, but he, he's already dead. But she was so muddled up at that point. Mm. Yeah. That I think she just kind of projected onto things, but yeah, it was he was a very creepy character, and especially I think because we knew when we were watching it, it's inside number nine, we know it's Shearsmith and Pemberton, and we're going, this is going to be creepy, this is going to be scary. Mm. So there's an expectation as well, which they totally defied, and I loved that at yeah. the end. I was like, they've totally pulled the rug. Well done. 
Yeah. Because I thought it was going to be some horrific ghost story or, you know, some Alzheimer's thing where she ends up in some horrible, you know, care home or something. And I was just re- waiting for this really, really creepy ending. And it wasn't creepy. It was really sad and poignant. It's and- strange, wasn't it? Because a lot of people have used the word uplifting. Really, the ending is a, a young boy being left mm. motherless in, yeah. with, for a car crash. But I think it's it's the fact that we're seeing it from the point of view of the mother in the mm. car crash. We're seeing the life that she's had and she... In the end, she sees all these these good things that she's had, and she's all the family at the table mm-hmm. uh, speaking to her. And they ended it with such sincerity. There was no nothing undermined it, and mm. it didn't seem too manipulative. I mean, even when when the little boy came in in the angel costume, and it just it all mm. fitted together and worked, didn't it? And it made you immediately want to go back and watch it again. Mm, that's true. Yeah. yeah, she didn't seem angry or particularly sad she seemed resigned yeah and almost at peace with the idea that oh okay this is what's happening Mm -hmm. it makes sense because obviously she's been going through some kind of hell really because it's jumbled up kind of mess and she was getting more and more afraid and more scared and all of a sudden ah this is what's going on sad obviously but there was an element of peace about her expression yeah before she passed away Mm. which i think passed on then to the viewing i mean i certainly remember i think i tweeted or put or put something on on social media at the time that i'd just seen the best half hours tv that Mm. i was going to see that year and i I do that a lot but i actually meant it that time (laughs) (laughs) Uh, right okay so uh coming up very soon uh, we're going to uh, give our final verdicts and uh, and a score i think we know which way this is going but uh, also i might just tell you about the time that i followed uh reese shearsmith on a lunch break at work through nottingham (laughs) 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 Uh, but that's going to come up after this inside number nine is known for setting episodes in confined locations. Perhaps the most extreme example being back in series one, where an entire episode was set largely inside a wardrobe. While other sitcoms may not have gone quite to that extent, many have attempted these so-called bottle episodes. Andy has been finding out more. During the production of the original 1960s series of Star Trek, the cast and crew referred to episodes which took place entirely aboard the Starship Enterprise as ship-in-a-bottle episodes. This term was subsequently shortened to the snappier bottle episode to refer to any instalment of a TV show which takes place largely in one enclosed space. Bottle episodes can be effective cost-cutting exercises, but they have also frequently produced some of the finest television scripts ever written, imposing limitations on writers that force them to focus on character and dialogue in a way that often leads to the most revealing, realistic and relatable results. Though this device is often used in drama series such as The West Wing, House and Breaking Bad, perhaps the most fascinating examples are the sitcom scripts. Given that they have the extra imposition of a half-hour runtime and the necessity to keep the laughs coming, well, in the best cases, really getting under the skins of their characters in a way that is dramatically satisfying and genuinely effective. Certain sitcoms employed a single setting as a regular feature. The first and best series of Cheers takes place entirely in the bar, while Steptoe and Son rarely ventured outside the rag and bone yard, and as a result, reached levels of claustrophobic melancholia worthy of Samuel Beckett. Norman Stanley Fletcher, you have pleaded... Viewers may have expected porridge, set within the confines of Slade Prison, to share a similarly enclosed atmosphere, but the series largely avoided this by making excellent use of the large institution's many spaces. But while it regularly found light in the darkness of incarceration, porridge was able to implicate viewers in the tough reality of prison life in the series one bottle episode, Night In, in which Ronnie Barker's prison veteran Fletch 
become soulmates with Richard Beckinsale's first time at Godba, an arrangement that was retained for the remaining two series. Hello, Fletch. So you, you, you was expecting me. They informed you. They informed me, yeah. Only temporary, they said. You're too right, it's only temporary, Godba. Single cell is his by rights, mine. The episode takes place entirely in one small cell as we are locked in for the night alongside its two inhabitants and immediately placed in the mindset of the prisoners. Although he is initially gruff with him, Fletch helps Gobba through the night as he opens up to him about his struggle to adapt to prison life. One place you can get a bit of privacy inside prison, that is, in your head. Dreams is your escape, isn't there? There's no locked doors, there's no barriers, there's no frontiers. Ah, dreams is freedom. Hey, yeah, you're right, Fletch. Presenting two very different well, characters with an unusual sensitivity and realism, well, we'll, Night In established we'll the dysfunctional father-son dynamic between Fletch well, and Godber that became such you. a linchpin of the series' success. Well, uh, when that door's locked, I am depressed and I am afraid, and, well, you just make it a bit more tolerable, like. You'll get used to it, son. The Bottle episode was a device used regularly by David Renwick in his sitcom One Foot in the Grave as the tedium and isolation of an enclosed space were the perfect metaphor for the predicament of the show's protagonist, reluctant retiree Victor Meldrew, played perfectly by Richard Wilson. What in the name of bloody hell? Renwick set himself the challenge to write one Bottle episode per series and as a result, Victor found himself stuck in a traffic jam, forgotten in a waiting room and enduring a power cut. Always an uncompromisingly dark series, One Foot in the Grave used these situations to slowly and subtly unveil small details about the characters' mindsets and histories. In the episode Timeless Time, for example, a sleepless night in bed for Victor and his wife Margaret leads to an ambiguous conversation about someone named Stuart, who is heavily implied to be the Meldrews' deceased son who died during childhood. I was thinking about him just this morning, funnily enough. Running into Guinness outside the post office with Michael. She had him just the four days before, if you remember. She was coming out of hospital just as I was going in. He's still working for that insurance company. They're talking about moving him to his own branch up north somewhere. She'll miss him. She never had any others. I always think of Stuart when I see him. This revelation is typical of the series' deft balance between the tragic and the ludicrous and casts the relentless grumpiness of Victor's character in an altogether more understandable light. I do not believe If Renwick never liked to give his characters an easy ride, he never allowed himself one either. In one of the series' greatest bottle episodes, The Trial, he increased the limitations on his writing by not only confining Victor to the house, but also removing every other character from the episode. A tour de force for Richard Wilson, the trial is a cleverly multi-layered monologue in which Victor awaits a call to inform him whether he is needed for jury duty. The meaning of the title is threefold, evoking Franz Kafka while also referring to the self-imposed cross-examination of the soul that Victor puts himself through as a result of his solitary confinement. Still, I've had a good life. <laughs> I've had a bloody awful life! Sometimes bottle episodes were used not to explore the darker corners of the soul, but to experiment in how many laughs could be wrung out of a simple situation. Seinfeld, one of the most successful US sitcoms of all time, would eventually be dubbed a show about nothing for its tendency to focus on the minutiae of modern life and the petty hang-ups we derive from it. 
One of the show's earliest episodes, The Chinese Restaurant, focused entirely on Jerry Seinfeld and his friends waiting in frustration to get a table at the titular eatery. You ever notice how, how happy people are when they finally get a table? They feel so special because they've been chosen. It's enough to make you sick. Boy, you are really hungry. In the process, they encounter further frustrations, like waiting to use a payphone, battling hunger pangs, and trying to place a woman they vaguely recognise. No, it's not fair that people are seated first come, first served. It should be based on who's hungriest. <laughs> Although the script met with opposition from NBC executives, who protested, doesn't something have to happen? The Chinese restaurant went on to be regarded as one of Seinfeld's greatest episodes and a landmark in sitcom history. Its success opened up the door for other American bottle episodes, like the popular Friends show, The One Where No One's Ready. As the etymology of the phrase began with Star Trek, it only seems right to end our look at sitcom bottle episodes with another space-themed classic, Red Dwarf. Although the idea of a sitcom set in space was initially rejected as a gimmick by some critics, across its first six series, Red Dwarf established itself as one of the smartest and most original comedies in years. Though ambitious, the first two series of Red Dwarf had been constrained by budgetary issues, but this allowed creators Rob Grant and Doug Naylor to focus on the central relationship between the last human being alive, Dave Lister, and his holographically projected dead bunkmate, Arnold Rimmer, as they floated aimlessly on the mining ship Red Dwarf. The cult success of Red Dwarf meant that by Series 3, Grant and Naylor were able to realise more ambitious sci-fi plots involving robots, time travel and emotion-sucking monsters. But with the episode marooned, they tipped their hat to the more dialogue-based earlier episodes and managed to write one of the tightest, funniest and most underrated half-hours of comedy ever screened. You lost your virginity on a golf course? How old were you? I was so excited I nearly dropped my skateboard. <laughs> skateboard? How old were you? Twelve. Twelve? Twelve years old? You lost your virginity when you were twelve? You can't have been a full member of the golf club then. Marooned finds Rimmer and Lister trapped on an ice planet when their ship crash lands. While Lister battles the cold and his growing hunger, he turns to Rimmer to take his mind off the predicament with conversation. Peppered with pathos, Marooned tackles the subjects of heroism, life and death, and, as they debate whether to burn what may be the last existing copy of the complete works of Shakespeare, whether cultural artefacts can ever be worth more than a human life. That's it then, is it? Toodle Pip King Lear, Farewell Macbeth, Bye Bye Hamlet. <laughs> Have you ever actually read any of it? I've seen West Side Story, that's basically <laughs> Exquisitely written and performed, Marooned is, in my opinion, the last word in the debate on bottle episodes. Or, to put it another way, a corker. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Andy, for that. Now, um, yeah, so we, we trailed there before. And I once saw Rishi Smith in Nottingham <laughs> on, a, on a lunch hour. I was on my lunch hour. And uh, it, was in, it was just over 10 years ago now. And uh, I panicked. I didn't, know, I didn't know what to do. And I used to have an hour for lunch. I mean, what, do you, what can you do in an hour? I just wandered about the place and tried to keep out of the pub. But um, I, I'd followed him. <laughs> I thought, well, I don't know what to say to him. So I definitely, I definitely knew I wasn't going to talk to him. Uh, and he went to the library. <laughs> I, let, I let him go in the library after that. Did you see what books he took out? No, I know. I, sh- oh, I should have. That could have given you some clues into his writing. So. <laughs> I, know, I know, 
know. But if, if in the next series there's a, an episode about a strange stalker <laughs> or something like that, yeah. we'll know where the idea came from. Exactly, exactly. Um, right, so um, from, from that slightly lame uh, celebrity stalking story. Um, so, I mean, they, they, earlier on, Andy, you dropped a bombshell, as far as I'm concerned, by saying, the, what was it, the first episode in yeah. series two of, of Inside Number Nine, uh, La Couche, and you, you're saying you didn't, you weren't keen? What? What's wrong with you? Well, it was just, I, I didn't, I thought it was a bit too kind of, uh, well, I'll, I'll say it up front, fart gags. There's too many of the, can I, can I say that? Is, is that, you is can that all right on air? You, yeah, you can say it, but you're I, wrong. I could, I could say, I could say Trump if it's more polite. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's, uh, there were just too many of them. And, I mean, I, I know it kind of, they were there to kind of set up an expectation which was then undermined, but... And I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally against it. I mean, I'll, uh, I'll laugh at the odd one, you know. I'll, uh, but they were, they were. <laughs> this just, is a revelation. Uh, they were just, they just <laughs> hammered it and hammered it. And whenever they do, I mean, if they, if if someone trumps in real life, I'm in hysterics. They're funny, they're funny <laughs> sounds. Heavens for that, I was going to have you taken away. <laughs> <laughs> they're funny sounds, and yet when they do it on TV, they, they're always so fake and so over. They're like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, can't you just get a dictaphone and record some real farts? They're funnier than these big raspers that you're putting on here. So that kind of uh, that kind of uh, turned me against it early on. But then I also, I just found it a bit annoying. I didn't really, I didn't really think the characters were as good in that one. And the, I liked the twist. The twist at the end was good. But for some reason, that one. I mean, I loved the rest of the series, but that one. It just bored me a little bit. Mm. Well, I mean, coming into the room, oh, you, you're wrong. Coming, <laughs> coming into the, just like fuck it. Coming, in, <laughs> coming into the rest of the series, um, I mean, we've talked there about the, the triumph of the twelve days of Christine, uh, but then the one following that, I think, I think where critics have, have, have come in and they, I oh, know, they might be touching on something. Uh, was it was the trial of Elizabeth Gadge? Is that mm. right? Where you know that perhaps wasn't as successful, but then this is it. Once you've hit a peak or you've had. You have I am. Uh, I suppose that's why the Stone Roses put I am the Resurrection on the Stone Roses into it. <laughs> because once you've had that, then you know maybe maybe do you think they should have put that in either the very first episode or the very last of the episode? Mm. I don't know. I think I think they've got it about right. But you know maybe that was a weaker episode, the Trial of Elizabeth. I Gage. don't know. I think I would have probably put the um, the CCTV one after mm. um, Twelve Days of Christine because it maintains that really high quality. I I actually thought the Trial of Elizabeth Gadge was really. I really didn't like it at all. Mm. It was acted well enough, but the ending wasn't very strong either. That's funny because so. I I really enjoyed that episode. Really? Yeah, I really what? I like the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like fart gangs. I agree that the, the ending was a bit weak, but I mean it's mm. it's one of those things where you, you shouldn't really get caught up, and it's not all about the ending. It's like the Twilight Zone. They're not, they're not <laughs> all about the ending. They're about the content. But I, I thought it was really it was really nicely written. Really, I mean there was a lot of corny gags in, but I like I like corny gags. I like fart. <laughs> gags like corny gags uh, I mean that, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe I didn't see it coming when there was someone by the name of Two Shoes that we were eventually going to meet a character called Goody Two Shoes who was his wife but uh, <laughs> is it now? I yeah, yeah, it still laughing at it's funny. It's and, uh, and also uh, I thought uh, David Warner in it was yeah. was one of the funniest performances in the series <laughs> uh, I haven't seen him for a long time the last time I remember seeing of him was play, when he played uh, 
Dr. Necessitor and Steve Martin's The Man With Two Brains. Which oh my is goodness, really, that was uh, amazing. Yes, no, I remember. <laughs> really funny, but, uh, but I thought he was great. He uh, he carried the episode for me. But Because uh, I, I do like I'm, David Warner, but I just I just got really... I remember being very... Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> it I was a very... I, I found it a very kind of a wordy episode, which mm. I, I quite liked. There was a lot of sort of play with that kind of language and, mm. and sort of the... The ridiculousness of those old witch trials and stuff. I really enjoyed it. I, and I, I think it was well placed because it was the first episode of that, that series which had any genuine sort of supernatural element to it. The first one was just played like a murder mystery and the second one seemed like it might do but then turned out to be a very human story. And then they went with this. So I think the, the tonal shifts were really good because then they could come into the helpline episode which again was a, a more human kind of episode mm. so i mean w- with all this of course we've missed out on the greatest ever episode which was the uh the, the silent episode where they played burglars in series one but you know <laughs> hey go back watch it <laughs> um, but actually i mean that's quite interesting the way you say that because i didn't watch um the trial of uh, elizabeth gadget they'd be coming back into this and now you've said that andy i'm going to go back and watch mm, it i think i will uh, too yeah yeah, well, yeah well, well, we've well, all you've, done, then. Well, yeah. you've done good work i have to watch the fart gags yes yes <laughs> yes it does uh, right okay and so I, I think I know which way our, our judging is going but hey let's just do it anyway uh, and um, I, I, more and more in this series I do like to make our uh, Radio Academy Award nominated producer twice nominated producer um, work for his um, well I was going to say money but you know uh, <laughs> um, so this time the scale is going to be either um, a clap or a, or, or a laugh uh, no, let's go for let's go for let's go for the go for the laugh uh, for the for the good thing, or it's going to be a scream uh, if it's going to be a, a, a horror. So they're the noises you're going to hear. You're not going to hear what we're going to say in the studio because we've done this before, and I think it worked a great effect. Uh, yeah. um, right. Okay. So, uh, Rachel, which way are you going to go? Um, I'm going to go for. <laughs> Sling that in. Um, And Andy? I'll go for a... (laughs) (laughs) Now, just, I mean, just to make him work, because it would be easy just to say, like, of course, we all agree with it, don't we? I mean, you know, we know where we stand on this, but I I wanted to put uh, this sound effect in. Um, so with that, and uh, we, we, we hope uh, that that doesn't give you nightmares, um, and to make sure you don't have nightmares, uh, here is Andy Goulding. I've always found religion just a teeny bit divisive. With 4,000 to choose from, well, I guess I'm indecisive. Before you call me cynical, I'd say in my defence, I try to live a good life on agnosticism's fence. Although I'd like to think I have a kind and giving heart, the good deeds that I do, it's true, result at least in part from fear of that phrase you hear when someone nearly dies, that they saw their whole existence flash before their very eyes. I realised in my twenties that if all of this was true, and death would be preempted by a mandatory review, the pricey of my life might not be all that complimentary, ten thousand pints of beer and some jobs in data entry. On that day I decided what this life is all about, is trying to make a better world before you get snuffed out, until I am the cause of that most minor of bereavements, I'd better use my time to try and chalk up some achievements. A decade down the line, I have a greater sense of worth, but I'll try and keep improving till I shuffle off this earth. I'll see it as a bonus if there is an afterlife, as I'd love the opportunity for more time with my wife. But if life is the main event and not some mortal sideshow, at least when I do meet with death, I might enjoy his slideshow. 
You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. And me. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing the links to our show or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at Ridley Scott's epic historical drama, Gladiator. I'm required to kill, so I kill. That is enough. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk, find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and the Joe Schmo Production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. May I recommend you explore our village green, which has a pond with a duck and a bench? As we must not forget the bench. Oh.